you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids' club. If you happen to be a second grader, your days of going to kids' club are soon coming to an end, but we'll cover that in a couple of weeks. Well, it's great to be back with you. As I mentioned last week, I greatly appreciated Lenny and Scott and Danny filling the pulpit while I was gone on a couple of trips, including Papua New Guinea. I'm exceedingly grateful to have men in our church who handle God's word well, and we're blessed to have a handful of them. So I am blessed as we are blessed. I also want to take a moment, starting off, to thank Calvary and to all those who supported me on a missions trip to Papua New Guinea. I had an incredibly profitable time of ministry and seeing firsthand what God is doing there. I wanted to share a couple pictures with you. I hope to share a full report with you at a different point, but here is my first one. This is my first experience on a small plane. Uh, John Leadall, by the way, was my pilot. John grew up just south of town, is the one-legged pilot. He has a prosthetic on his right leg. But, oh, come back. Go back to that one. There's me. Uh, Ron James is sitting to my left. Tim uh, Hughes is sitting behind me. Tim is one of the missionaries we support. Tim is the director of operations for uh, New Tribes Ministries Aviation. To his left is Mitch Hoskins, his son-in-law, another missionary we support. Mitch is the, currently serving as the operations manager there at Lapalo, which is the missions base where they, he oversees all the support ministries. And the man sitting behind Tim is a man named Kuhn. I cannot pronounce his last name. He's from Belgium. And it's got a couple extra syllables in there and consonants that fit together that I just don't know how to say it. So uh, got to spend a lot of time with those guys. The next picture is me, uh, a man named Dave Og. Dave was a Bush missionary. What that means is that Dave and his wife committed to spend 30 years in the bush. They moved out to a small village on what started off as a three-week hike in to Dave's great blessing. They started flying planes in. It's now about a 20-minute plane ride, so they don't have to hike three weeks in and three weeks out. Uh, You start to see the necessity of aviation ministry. To his right is a man named uh, Rodney. Rodney is an elder in that church. Rodney actually was going back to visit this church. He had moved with the, so a number of the Sambari people had moved out, and he moved to stay with his people and was going back to visit his tribe. And so when we flew in there, it was an amazing thing. Um, we'd, I don't have the picture of the church elder, but when they heard the plane coming, this guy runs down a valley, runs back up a valley, uh, apparently ran it in 40 minutes. I'm told for a white person that's about a two-day hike. Uh, puked everywhere out of excitement. But we got to this village, the next picture. Um, th- this is the Sambari people, the Sambari tribe. Uh, I've never been a- on a plane where we landed on a, uh, an airstrip about the size of a football field before. Uh, we hit mud, we slid around, it was exciting. Uh, luckily, we took off before we got to the cliff. I was happy about that. Um, but it was amazing to see a people uh, in the middle of the mountains in Papua New Guinea love Jesus and to see this church that they've built and... Um, fascinating to hear that even these people having walked through the book of Acts started thinking, well, we need to leave. There's tribes around us who don't know about Jesus. And they're like, wait, your discipleship isn't over. But they started going and they just couldn't wait to go. And um, so that was really fun to be a part of. And then the last picture I'll show you is the church at Lapalo. Lapalo is this huge missions base I got to spend a couple weeks on. The biggest part of my ministry was to those missionaries. I spoke in both of their church services. There were about 300 people there the first time, uh, about 200-something the second. So thank you for sending me. It was a great encouragement both to me uh, and from the missionaries that I've heard back from. They enjoyed it as well. So thank you for 
uh, letting me go and sharing me with them. This morning, we are continuing on in the book of Acts, uh, which we will be continuing through and staying in through the fall. The book of Acts in chapter 1 starts with the disciples standing around just after Jesus has ascended into the clouds and they are commissioned. Now, I like to start the book of Acts this way because it is a really good picture of what the life of a believer. You have Jesus and now what? I think that's very much the moment in Acts 1. We, we know Jesus. We know salvation. Now, what do we do with it? And so just before he ascends, Jesus commissions them. says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that has been our major theme and will continue to be our theme in the book of Acts. That just as these 12 received power when they received the Holy Spirit, so you too have received power when you receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 reminds us, In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul puts forth to us, what does it mean to be in Christ? It means when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel, that you believed it. That you took the step to trust Christ, to believe in him and in his sufficiency, And in that moment, according to the scriptures, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's what the text tells us. And that's how the gospel went forward in the book of Acts. That's how the church grew. Not because Jesus hired a bunch of pastors, but because he commissioned his disciples under the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. And these were all normal, everyday people. Just like the example of Luke, the guy who wrote this book. Luke himself was a Gentile doctor, and we can't forget that. Because we could think Luke was this special guy, and he wasn't. He was a normal guy, he was a doctor, didn't even walk with Jesus, literally, but became a believer under the ministry of Paul, and started following Christ. And then set out to write about all he had saw and heard to influence his friend named Theophilus. That's how we get the book of Acts. That's how we get the book of Luke. This disciple named Luke hears about it. And you start to see this generational witnessing of one person leading another to Christ. Who leads another to Christ. All to make an impact on what is now the world. So this morning as we open up Acts 6. We're going to be introduced to another normal guy with a normal job who believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit and was his witness. Turn with me into Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll begin what will be a two-week look at the man named Stephen. Verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. So let's pause here and drive home our first point. Stephen, who is first introduced to us in verse 5 as being nominated to serve as a deacon in the church, is described here as full of grace and power. So what does it mean to be full of grace? 
Paul in Ephesians describes for us the means of salvation when he says this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Several verses before this, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sin. And then in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So church, what does it mean to be full of grace? It means to know the fullness of your inability to deal with your own sin. To be full of grace is to understand the complete sufficiency from which Christ has dealt with all of your sin. This isn't your doing. This isn't your work. This isn't your accomplishments. This is Christ's work. This is what he did at the cross for you. That's the only thing that being full of grace could possibly mean. So what does it mean to be full of power? Well, that's everything we've talked about in the book of Acts, isn't it? That we believe in Jesus and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, not part of it, but all of it. And in receiving the Spirit, we receive power, not some of it, but all of it. So church, let me ask you this. What part of this does not describe you? In fact, I say church, that would refer to those of you who've believed in Jesus. I would encourage you now on your piece of paper, should you be a note taker, to write your name and then inscribe, full of grace and power. Because that's you, if you've believed in Jesus. You need to claim that and walk in that. Stephen is not an unusual, abnormal guy. He just knew what Jesus did for him, and he lived it out. Christ was sufficient to him. Luke continues to describe Stephen and going on to say this in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Three years ago, we taught through Hebrews chapter 11 during the summer. In doing so, we defined faith as taking God as his word and living like it's true. That's exactly what Stephen is doing here. He's taking God as his word. He hears, you will receive power, and he lives out the power he's received. He believes what Jesus has said about him, and he lives like it's true. We see that happen, and so the Holy Spirit starts to move and confirm the truth of the gospel message with signs and wonders. And just like that, walking and representing Jesus, conflict comes. Church, please remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. 
To one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. What Paul testifies to the Corinthian church is in Christ, you're the aroma of life to those who are being saved, but to those who are perishing, you are the aroma of death. Which means this, if Christ is emanating from you, you'll stink to unbelievers. They really will struggle to tolerate you at times according to the scripture. And God foretells that to you so that you will know that, so that you will persevere in that. So let's talk about that for a moment. Because this is what Stephen is about to walk into. It's the message of the cross that was offensive. It was the message of Christ being his redeemer that was offensive. It was Christ's sufficiency that was offensive. So church, let me push you on this a little. We don't need to try to be offensive. We don't need to try to go around offending people. It's our message of his sufficiency that is offensive. Watch this. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. What Luke testifies here is that there were some men from a particular synagogue, ironically called the freedmen. Uh, Historically, these would be people who were carried off in captivity, were set free, came back to Jerusalem, started a synagogue. Historically, there could have been anywhere from 350 to 400 synagogues in Jerusalem at the time. So just because there's tons of churches around doesn't mean that Christ isn't being exalted. There were tons of synagogues around even in those days. But in this synagogue, there were a group of men who began to dispute with Stephen. You'd find historically there's those who would say that this could have very well been the synagogue that Stephen grew up in, and in fact could have been the synagogue that Paul grew up in. And they begin to dispute something with Stephen. They have a disagreement. So what's the heart of that? Verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, which is to say they couldn't stand up to his arguments. They couldn't refute him. Luke says it was his wisdom, it was the Holy Spirit that was too much. Let's keep looking. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Two thoughts. One, we'll cover everything Stephen believes about Moses and God next week when we step into chapter 7 where he walks us all the way through the history of Israel, through most of Genesis and part of Exodus. But we have to remember this happened to Jesus too. They didn't like his preaching, they didn't like his message, so they instigate a crowd, Luke continues. Verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, And brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses. Have you watched that? Because Stephen's probably praying at this moment, God, why is it so unfair 
God, why is this happening to me? I'm being accused of things. Stephen might even feel hopeless. In fact, I'd submit to you, Stephen's praying the Psalms over and over and over again in this season. Why is this going on? And why is it going on? Because people in their pride are asserting themselves. They're pushing back on the gospel, and they're pushing back on Stephen, and he's feeling that impact. And church, when you assert the gospel, there'll always be an impact, and it won't always feel good. But Stephen presses on. They set up false witnesses who testify. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So finally, we get to the heart of their dispute. Again, in verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy temple. But again, note, they instigated, they stirred up, they set up false witnesses, all because he was spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him. He was preaching the aroma of Christ. So let's take one more step into this. What was he preaching? Let's look again at 13. He was speaking words against the temple and the law. If you follow this all the way through, you can see the dispute that was coming up was about the temple and the law and its place. How do you worship? Do you go to a place? Do you do the thing? Do you try to accomplish these works and make God pleased with you? Is it about worship at the temple in this one particular place in this one way of doing things? Do you have to take sheeps and bulls and goats and pigeons? What does it look like? Because those of the synagogue are pointing to the temple. They're pointing to their sacrifices. They're pointing to their works as a necessary means of being cleansed and of being forgiven. And Stephen no doubt is pointing to Jesus and is making the same argument that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author of Hebrews points out, you're going back to the temple over and over again. You're making these sacrifices and it is not cleansing you. You're having to do it every year, being reminded of your sin and it's not taking it away. A couple of verses further down. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly 
the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. Imagine standing there at the altar, sheep after sheep, goat after goat, being slaughtered, blood being spilled, knowing that you see the same people every time. It's the same guy every week. It's the same families every year. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his tent. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, what Stephen does here is he makes a stand for the gospel. That the blood of bulls and goats will not take away sins. That your good works will not take away sins. That measuring your good versus your bad will not take away sins. That helping a little old lady across the road will not take away your sin. Not even sacrificing a goat, a bull, a chicken, or whatever else you can dream up of. It is only through Jesus Christ who laid down his life, who offered himself as the single sacrifice, as an innocent one, as the son of our God, offers himself for our sins. And it's only through him that we can be forgiven. Only through him that we could be justified. That is to say that by Christ's death, he looks at us. And we're not looked at as sinners anymore. We're justified. Our sins have been taken away. And we're seen as Christ. Second song we sang this morning is Boldly I Approach the Throne. Why? Because when we enter the throne room of God, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us through Christ so we can boldly approach God the Father. With great boldness, we can come into the throne room because of the work of the Son. We've been justified and we've been sanctified. We've been set apart. Both positionally, he sees us as different. And We've been sanctified. Stephen was making his stand for the gospel. And church, that is where we must make our stand too. On the gospel. On the centrality of Jesus Christ's death as the only sufficient means to take away our sins. It is by grace that we are saved and not by works. Church, this is where Stephen made his stand. This is where we are called to make our stand. To illustrate this for you, let me share you an illustration of Ben's failures. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with a lady who was probably going to die in the next couple of months. We were talking, and it was on my heart, on my soul, to ask her where she was spiritually. So I asked her a question. So how are you with Jesus? Like, how are you in regards to him right now? Her question, her answer was, I think me and Jesus are doing fine. And I asked her a couple other questions to follow up with it. 
And I wasn't really con- settled with where we, our conversation landed, but I wasn't sure what else to say. That's my failure. I walked away and it occurred to me, it doesn't matter how she feels about Jesus. Because she could have a very wrong and perverse view about Jesus and feel okay with that. She could have an incorrect, invalid, unbiblical view of Jesus that she's reconciled herself to and be okay with. No, my failure in that moment was to put before her the truth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has died on a cross for her sin, the only sufficient means to take care of her sins, and that by believing in him, she could have eternal life. Have you believed in him? See, that should have been my question. Because that's the only question that matters. Because if she's believed in him, that reconciles her to God, not how she feels about a Jesus that she can construct in her mind. Jesus, this is where we make our stand on the truth of who he is. I often tell my fellow brothers in ministry, I get this call from time to time, I share with my fellow pastor friends that we only get one platform and it had better be Jesus. If it's anything else, all we'll do is diminish Jesus, which is to say this, church, our platform is not morality, as if the world needs better rule followers. You can follow all kinds of rules and still go to hell. We need to watch our rhetoric towards the world as if all we're trying to produce is rule followers. We need the world to do more this. We need the world to do less that. Be more like this. All we're trying to do is produce rule-following hell-goers. And we'll miss it. Our platform is not a social agenda. As if conformity to our standards would somehow lead to eternal life. Friends, you could conform and adhere to the highest degree and still go to hell. Our platform is not political, as if the right laws, the right candidate, the right senators, the right congressman, the right president, mayor, governor, you name it, the right country being elected, being in power. We could have the most conservative, God-fearing anything in the world and still go to hell. What we need, what people need is Jesus. Not more rules, not a better economy, not better government, Jesus. Stephen was willing to put everything in on this. And we should too. The gospel. Friends, we need to be willing to lose every argument but one. Now, am I saying that politics don't matter? No. Am I saying that social agendas don't matter? No. Am I saying that sanctification or the hearing or following Christ in your practices don't matter? I'm not saying any of those things. But I am saying this. We need to be willing to lose every argument for the sake of Christ but one. And this 
is the only argument that matters. That Jesus Christ is the only sufficient means to pay the price for our sins. It's the only thing that will reconcile us to God the Father. It's the only means to eternal life. I regularly watch people in person and on social media destroy their ability to preach Christ crucified because they're creating such a barrier between themselves and those they're trying to seek. It happens all the time, every day. Friends, on every side of the argument, every side of the aisle, we cannot be reduced to calling people stupid and ignorant and uneducated for not agreeing with us. There's something more important than how we feel about politics or social agendas or rule following. When we do this, we might well win the intellectual fight and lose the spiritual battle. Again, I'm not telling you that politics don't matter. I'm not telling you that social agendas don't matter and that rules don't matter. I'm just telling you we got to lose the intellectual fight to win the spiritual battle some days. We gotta make our fight, we gotta make our stand on the right thing. And it's the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for our sin. Not once did Jesus ever seek to clean a man before he saved him. Not once. It's often been said you can't clean a fish before you catch it, it's a true adage. And Jesus does the same thing. He calls people to himself and then beckons them to obedience. Happened with me. Happened with you. Our stand has to be on Jesus Christ and on him crucified. Stephen knew this. He made this his stand, likely standing up to a synagogue of people he grew up around, potentially even his parents and all of their friends. He made that stand. And as we'll see next week, he was martyred for it. He was stoned to death. Because he believed in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and was so all in on that being the only thing that mattered, he was willing to die for it. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, we need to be reminded this morning that there is no way to the Father except through Jesus. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. Which is to say this, we get one platform. And as followers of Jesus Christ, it had better be Jesus. It had better be him and him crucified. Him being the only means that could take away my sin. It better be Jesus. Because no one comes to the Father except through 
him. Stephen made his stand on the gospel. Probably lost a lot of other arguments. Are those other things important? Absolutely. Are they really important? Maybe. But Jesus is the only thing that's internally important. The only thing that's eternally important. Let me pray for us. Great God in heaven, I can talk to you now because of the completed work of your son. We can come to you now through your son. There's no other way, there's no other path. It's not rule following, it's not good works, it's not doing enough right things, it's not my good outweighing my bad. It's belief in Jesus Christ that his death was sufficient for my sin that renders me sanctified in your eyes. It's through belief in your son that my sins are totally forgiven. Father, it's belief in Jesus. Father, what the world needs is Jesus. There's so many other things that could be offered. All of them are insufficient. What the world needs is Jesus and him crucified. May that be the argument we won't lose. May that be the one place where we'll make our stand, where we'll push for clarity, where we'll seek to make it known and clear that there is only one way, and it is through Jesus. And not a Jesus we can construct in our mind, but the Jesus of the Bible. Father, would you make us a bold people testifying to him and to his completed work And may we, like Stephen, cling to it. Father, for it is our only means of salvation. It is the only way to which anyone is saved. Father, we're gathered as a church this morning as a group of people who are not following all the rules. We're not doing everything well or right. We gather together because you've forgiven us. That is our bond. You put us in this body, your church, because of what you did, not because of what we did. Father, we invite people into our body because of what you did, not because of what they do. God, would you be glorified through the name of your Son and bringing people to you and using us to bring people who are different than us to you. Father, let us make our stand on the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.